Welcome to Making Special Education Actually Work, an online publication presented in blog and podcast form by KPS for Parents. As an added benefit to our subscribers and visitors to our site, we're making podcast versions of our text-only blog articles so that you can get the information you need on the go by downloading and listening at your convenience. We also occasionally conduct discussions with guest speakers via our podcast and transcribe the audio into text for our followers who prefer to read the content on our blog. Where the use of visual aids, legal citations, and references to other websites are used to better illustrate our points and help you understand the information, these tools appear in the text-only portion of the blog post of which this podcast is a part. You will hear a distinctive sound during this podcast whenever reference is made to content that includes a link to another article, website, or download. Please refer back to the original blog article to access these resources. Today is September 27th, 2022. This post and podcast is titled Interview of Rose Griffin, SLP and BCBA, which was originally recorded on August 29th, 2022. In this podcast, I interview Rose Griffin about her past work in the public education system and the work she is doing now to educate professionals and parents to support children with special needs to address their challenges at the intersection of communication and behavior. I'm here with Rose Griffin, who's a speech and language pathologist as well as a board-certified behavior analyst, correct? That's right. Yes, less than 500 of us in the world. So, yeah, you're a you're a rare species, and you're very valuable. <laughs> the, the crossover between your disciplines is really very valuable. I have another colleague, uh, relatively local to me, who's an OT and a BCBA. And oh, yeah, that's very rare. I probably know them. Yeah, there's not many of those at all. Yeah, yeah. and um, and so you know, her whole thing is you know, kids, especially on the autism spectrum, have sensory integration issues. And the degree to which that interferes with behavior or it creates sensory seeking behaviors that interfere with learning in the school setting or whatever the case may be. But that sensory behavior connection is where, you know, she really knows her stuff. And it's very rare that I run into people who have, you know, those dual disciplines and understand the connections. And I think when you and I first started uh, communicating about doing this podcast together, you know, my mind immediately went to functional communication. Because because we have a lot of kids who they have the speech and language services to teach them, you know, often in a small group or an individual one-on-one situation, sometimes pushed into a classroom situation, but most often not in my experience. And then somehow Mm -hmm. they're supposed to generalize that to the world at large. And uh, you know, right? It's and, a miraculous. Yeah, it's just yeah. gonna, yeah, it's just gonna be osmosis or something. And so, um, you know, there needs to be that explicit reinforcement of the behavior in the in vivo context in order for them to make the connection between what you're talking about in a therapeutic situation and real life. And that's where the the behavioral supports come in, where functional communication skills are used as behavior strategies in an ABA based program. And so that, in my mm-hmm. mind, that's that was where everything immediately went when I saw your quality qualifications because I'm like oh she's in that nexus of you know where <laughs> yeah. the because the, all all communi- what is what is the saying all behavior is communication and, right there's and, that thing they and, say that a lot mm-hmm. and, and all language is a learned behavior so you know that <laughs> the, the language behavior there really is no divide and it's mm-hmm. just it's more as it's, it's different nuances of the same thing parsed out and mm-hmm. and so what have been your experiences because I'm assuming you go into the s- schools or you do work with the schools as well? Yeah, so for 20 years, I worked as a school-based speech-language pathologist, okay. and I started my own business called ABA Speech 
five years ago. Okay. And I actually just decided in May to step away from the schools to focus on my business where I offer courses and I have a podcast called Autism Outreach and we have products. But I still love to be in touch with the school. So it looks a little bit different now. Right. Um, now I'm just kind of seeing a handful of private clients. But yeah, for 20 years, I worked as a school-based SLP. And I really loved being able to provide therapy in that natural setting. And I really did a lot of push in therapy into the classroom. And Good. there's some students that I need to see in my office. But, you know, I worked in middle school, high school, so maybe I had a kid with selective mutism, or maybe I had a kid who was stuttering, or maybe the classroom was really loud and I needed to pull a student right. into my office to give them a break from the classroom. Right. So, um, but I definitely tried to push in and do like a group so I could model therapy strategies for the teacher and one-on-one staff and things like that, yeah. Well, and the push-in model is so much more supportive of generalizing those skills from a pull-out situation to real life. That gives you the opportunity right. to go into the real-life classroom and say, okay, here's where you need to do this, bro, you know? <laughs> and yeah, especially yeah, when you're absolutely. like coaching Even people on pragmatics, you know, with people who have a hard yeah. time in the room. That's always, yeah, that's, that's, that's hard. That's ever changing for everybody. I had some students that had more direct instruction, more traditional type ABA services, and I would go into the classroom and see them in their teaching area. And every student was just so individualized. Exactly. But I tried to do whatever worked for each student. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. And that's really how it should be done. It is supposed to be individualized. Yeah. I just, I think it's a, it's a fascinating overlap that a lot of people fail to appreciate that that connection <laughs> between language and behavior and how much oh, yeah. how much you know how often do we say no hitting use your words and yet that connection <laughs> still doesn't get made in people's minds you know it's like well after they're toddlers that doesn't right. count anymore it's like no it always counts right. <laughs> That never goes yeah. away. Yeah, that's my own kids. Yeah, they're like, you know, an upper elementary school middle school. Right. <laughs> well, and I have to say, you know, I mean, I use these skills just as much to navigate the politics of the IEP process as anything mm-hmm. else. I'm using these same skills to deal with the adults in the situation and to try yeah. and, and, yeah. and get an IEP to say what it needs to say without ruffling mm-hmm. feathers and without people getting their feelings oh, yeah. heard and taking things personally when it's about this construction of a legally binding document and not anybody's personality. And you know, and so yeah. it's, it's, you know, having to dance around all of that, I find that I, I mean, my I have my master's in, in educational psychology. I'm qualified to go in and do school-based, yeah. you know, behavior assessments, but I, I, I don't go in as an outside assessor. I'm there as the lay advocate, yeah. and so I keep that hat on. Oh, okay. But, yeah. you know, I'm going in as an informed lay advocate, and I've also paralegaled all the way up to the Ninth Circuit of, of the Court of Appeals. So the only place I haven't gone yet is the U.S. Supreme Court. And so um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm coming at this from both a compliance standpoint and from a science standpoint that the law uh-huh. mandates the application of the peer-reviewed research to the design and delivery of special ed. But we don't Uh have any mechanisms in place to really truly facilitate that. And so when I find Mm -hmm. people who have extraordinary qualifications who have worked in the school setting (laughs) who have like, okay, I found my workaround, you know, it's you're you're having to drag the science into a setting that really isn't designed for it and Mm -hmm. and trying to implement it in a situation where you're having to sell everybody on the inside on the legitimacy of what you're trying to do because it's not Mm -hmm. how it's always been done. And so there's a lot of politics and 
culture, you know, internal district culture issues that have to be overcome before you, sometimes the science will be legitimately applied. And so I see varying degrees of success with kids who have IEPs that call for certain things, but you, they jump from one school district to another. And what that looks like in one place to a, a different place are two totally different things. And the child does better in one setting versus the other with things that say they're identically described on paper. And it really does mm-hmm. come down to quality control at the individual school sites. And what I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about fidelity and data collection, mm-hmm. because one of the biggest issues that I've run into in any aspect of special ed is the validity of how the data is being collected, basically going to the mm-hmm. measurability of the goals, whether or not they're legitimately measurable. Because, you know, mm-hmm. back in the 90s, to backtrack a little bit, there was some kind of workshop for teachers somewhere. And I'm not sure who the entity was that put it on. I have my suspicions. There's organizations <laughs> out there that tend to disfavor special ed as something okay. the government should be doing. And mm-hmm. there's a number of those individuals, certainly not the majority of people in public education, but there are a number of them who are employed within public education who truly do not mm-hmm. believe that this is how government resources should be expended. And they in the camp of Betsy DeVos, who wants to dismantle the U.S. Department of Education. So they're there to undermine it from within and prove that somehow government doesn't really work. Well, yeah, not when you're there. (laughs) So, um, you know, (laughs) doing that kind of stuff. And so there's people of that ilk who are peppered throughout the system who are trying to prevent anything that's going to, to produce a system of accountability, anything that's going to create an audit trail. This is why you haven't seen all of the, the business automation technologies that were perfected in the private industry over the last 30, 40 mm-hmm. years. They still have not been deployed throughout all of our public agencies because then you, the people mm-hmm. who are misappropriating funds and doing illicit things, they have no shadows to hide in anymore. And similarly, when mm-hmm. ABA showed up in the special ed arena with all of the data collection and like doing it according to a scientifically valid method, well, that meant that you mm-hmm. were going to take data on everybody blowing it. And mm-hmm. you were gonna you were gonna create evidence that families could use to to hold their, their school districts accountable if you actually took data on what was really going on. And you know, as as a BCBA, you know, you know this that it's not just when you're doing a truly scientifically rigorous ABA program, you're not just taking data on how the individual responds to the intervention. You're also taking data on how the implementers are implementing the plan with fidelity. You're taking fidelity data on how well the plan is implemented because it could only fail for one of two reasons either a design flaw or an implementation failure. So you've got to have data on, is the design working? which you only know if you're trying to implement the plan according to its design. We have seen a huge, huge push against taking fidelity data as part of any child's behavior intervention plan in an IEP because of the audit trail it will create and the fact that it will capture people not doing the job rather than, you know, uh, using it as a quality control measure. And so it seems that in my experience, what I've run into it, it you know, and bearing in mind that I only get contacted by people whose, whose kids' IEPs are just gone off the rails and it's a horrible situation. Nobody calls me up to tell yeah. me how great it's going. So I'm only coming into the worst <laughs> of the worst. But mm-hmm. stepping into the worst of the worst, what I find are concerted efforts to cover things up when things have gone wrong and then try to create some sort of legal defense that shifts the blame away from the school district and you know one of the preemptive legal defense strategies that their lawyers will will have them do is like take as little data as possible and and so you have this this energy against valid data collection and fidelity measurement that undermines the integrity of the process even though the law mandates the application of the science 
and that's not the science, you know. And so families, but families are the enforcement arm of the law because, you know, we're a government of the people. So if there's no, you know, uh, special ed police running around to make sure everybody's doing it the way it's supposed to be done, the only way the law gets enforced is when somebody breaks it and a parent reports them. And so we have parents having to bear the burden of understanding what the science is to even be able to know that it hasn't been applied. And we have people in the schools who don't know the science, much less how to apply it. And so we've got a lot of, of changes coming up on the horizon that we see are inevitable in that regard. But having worked for 20 years in the public schools, having trying to apply the science to the benefit of children, what have your experiences been of trying to to stick to the, to the fidelity of the, the science that's behind what you're doing? Has that been a challenge for you? Yeah, I've had great experiences. Yeah, I've been a school-based speech therapist and have worked really hard to build rapport with families and teams. And yeah, we really help students and support them in that natural environment of a public school. So yeah, on my end, it's been really it's been really positive for my students to get those services within a public school. It's been great. Have you had a hard time though with respect to the peer-reviewed research and being able to bring in the current research into the school setting and implement yeah. new uh -huh. stuff right away? No. And it might just be where I live. You know, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, a mm -hmm. suburb of that. And we have a lot of really great providers here. And, um, yeah, I've just had really great experiences. And, That's and really had fabulous. Any big That's fabulous mm -hmm. to hear because I, I'm, I'm telling you, this, this is my uphill battle all the time. And I'm in California, <laughs> oh, which is one of the most progressive and heavily regulated states in the country for special ed. Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of wow. set the tone for because we have more special ed due process cases every year. Oh, I'm sure. Than, I mean, it's some states, so yes. Yeah, yeah. Some states go for years without having any at all, and <laughs> and so you know, and it's, it goes to the degree to which the yeah. either the parents don't know their rights or things right. things are going successfully, and you don't have the kinds of challenges that you know that other districts run into. And I think it goes to quality of leadership. So it sounds to me like you've been in a very blessed situation where you haven't had to contend <laughs> with those kinds of situations, which are just you know more more common than yeah. people would like to think. I mean, you know, we have you know, uh, our organization was actually founded in. 2003 following the death of the a classmate of our founder's nephew who was Aww, uh, was smothered to death by his teacher in front of everybody in the classroom during an unlawful prone oh. restraint and was oh dear yeah and it, it was horrible and and he never went back to school okay. after that it was a class for emotionally disturbed children and this teacher was oh, supposed dear. to be there help all these children with these mental and emotional health needs get better yeah. and instead oh, she dear. was this authoritarian monster who just bullied them and and so you know these things do happen and it's not as rare as people would like that act case actually ended up being included and um and i've got a oh and the blog post that goes with this podcast will include links for it we have an article yeah. about this from a while back, but um, they just explained our history and how this all happened but um this particular child's family he was a foster child and so the moment his life was terminated, so was his foster mother's parental authority. And so she couldn't do anything to hold anybody accountable because she no longer had parental rights at that point. She had no authority and no standing. But mm -hmm. a few years after that, Congress had commissioned a study on the use of seclusions and restraints in special ed in the public schools. And it was mm -hmm. public schools in general, but it turned out that the special ed kids were the ones who were most commonly restrained and secluded. And um, this young man's case was a part of the, that federal investigation. We were shocked mm -hmm. to see it because it's the reason why we founded our organization. It was the, you know, the final straw that mm -hmm. made us pull that plug. But to see that in the federal report, and it was actually like one of the feature cases, and they actually um, had the um, foster mother go to, to, 
to Washington, D.C. and testify before Congress about what had happened. And what they determined was the teacher had never been held accountable, that she had never received any kind of negative consequence for any of this, and was able to leave the state of Texas and go to Virginia. And at the time of the hearing, when this, this foster mother was testifying, this teacher was only 45 minutes away running a special ed classroom in Virginia, from where Congress was hearing testimony about how she had murdered this child and got away with it. It's a failure of me of multiple systems, but this goes to our, our whole thing that special ed is really the, 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 the work that we do in advocacy to, to address these kinds of problems is really part of a larger social justice issue because it wasn't just mm-hmm. the special ed system that failed. It was the, the, mm-hmm. the foster care system. It was the, the criminal justice system. It was the teacher credentialing system. It was, there was all kinds of parts, parts of the system that broke down that allowed this to happen. And a lot of it goes to the bureaucracy and the lack of communication. And if all of mm-hmm. these agencies were actually interconnected in a wide area network enterprise class computing environment, the way that like Walmart or Sanyo or UPS Freight or any of these big global organizations that have these huge computing environments, they overcame these obstacles decades ago. But we don't have the Mm -hmm. same consistency of flow of information. And because of that, we've got consumers having to go to 15 different agencies and applying for 15 different types of service, you know, and maybe you're talking about somebody in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank who has to go trucking around all over the place instead of the money following the consumer. The consumer has to go chasing after the money. And so we've got a lot of organizational defects. You know, when you start looking at, you start talking about a plan and and looking at a behavior plan versus a plan for the operation of of an entity, it really isn't that remarkably different. And does this plan actually support the functions of the behaviors that, you know, do these behaviors support the function of the organization? Are we rewarding, are we reinforcing the right behaviors in this organization? And so for me, I think that there's also a carryover of what you do into the organizational structure of, you know, in the organizational cultures. I know that ABA is used very much in an industrial sense by private industry to create, Mm -hmm. you know, positive workplace environments. And do you see a value of your profession and people in your profession, you know, crossover between both really, of going in and doing professional development and and, and positive culture building and and help healing the cultures of some of these environments where people are not invested in their constituents? There's a whole um, branch of ADA called OBM, Mm -hmm. Organizational Management, I think is what it's called. Yep. I don't have any experience with that, but I think it makes a lot of sense to use the science. And there are people that specialize in just doing that, and they're doing going into organizations, helping with the culture, helping streamline workflows, and I think that is definitely something that's positive. There's so many different things that you can do with the science of applied behavior analysis, oh, but know. autism is just one very small area, so that's what I people tell are people. doing great work in different realms. I, yeah. I tell people that, I'm like, look, ABA is a science, it is not an autism service. It's the science mm-hmm. behind certain autism services that address behavior, but it is not an autism service per se. And a lot of people don't realize mm-hmm. that. I'm like, no, it, it, ABA applies to crustaceans and computer code. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can analyze anything that behaves. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. always a cause for everything. Yeah. You know, and everything serves a function. And so uh, that's something that I, I think that there needs to be more discussion around and more research done into of how that organizational aspect of ABA can be used as part of the healing process of all of these things that we're dealing with in our culture right now. I mean, all of the the conflicts and the dividedness and the fights and the you know it just i think that aba sort of takes the temperature down because you're doing nothing but black and white neutral statements of fact 
and only mm-hmm. things that are objectively observable. Like, this is what we know mm-hmm. to be true. And I think that bringing the conversation back to, to, I mean, getting away from the hysteria and coming back to the rule of law and back to the scientific method, both of which are evidence-based, you know, you have these logic statements, they're very similar into how, how you execute both, that calmer heads can sit there and do that kind of black and white analysis. And like, okay, let's get to the, to the bottom of line of what is and then we can decide how we're going to emotionally react to it. But right now we've got everybody mm-hmm. reacting to the data rather than to the outcome of the analysis that, mm-hmm. you know, people are prejudging what a piece of data might actually mean rather than putting mm-hmm. it all together and reaching a logical conclusion about, okay, here's the story as told by the evidence. And I think that we do our young people a huge disservice by not teaching them to think that way as just simply part of curriculum. I think that there's a huge value in teaching people about ABA as part of like a high school psychology class. I think that it's a skill that, and it's Mm -hmm. all it is is the ability to see what is without cluttering it up with a bunch of other superfluous details. It's about how to prioritize your data and focus on what's the most Mm -hmm. important thing and and engage in that neutral fact-based decision-making. And I think that if that were taught as a skill just in in general for all kids, I think that would help develop them, especially in high school when that prefrontal cortex is starting to come online and they're starting to think more abstractly and they're looking for that kind of structure to, to structure their thoughts. I think that that's something we need to start really thinking about as we, we start, try to, to develop tomorrow's leaders and problem solvers, that ABA just is a skill as a science mm-hmm. is valuable just as much as it is to learn about the law of gravity. You know, I think <laughs> that we, we focus on the physical aspects and, and we consider the hard sciences more legit than the soft sciences. And I'm like, I don't see how you think that ABA is not hard science. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so, um, I mean, what are your thoughts about making the science just more part of a mainstream part of the human experience and making it more part of the of just common knowledge? How valuable do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, you know, with my business at ABA Teach, I disseminate information daily. And I don't always even say that it's ABA, but I just talk about the way that I use the science of applied behavior analysis is by helping autistic learners find their voice and increase their communication skills. And so... Everybody that is a is a BCBA definitely has the opportunity to disseminate and to share how they're using the science to help support students or whatever facet they are included in. So I think that being able to share that is important, and that's what I do through my online business. So it's important to me to share that. Yeah, I, I think the more that the, the folks I work with understand the science that's being applied to their kids, the more comfortable they are with it. And it logically makes sense to them. And I, I have moms who will, are like goddesses of coming up with goals and, and, and how to track the data <laughs> and how, you know, which method of, you know, I'm going to do, do DRI or DRA. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're like, you know, honorary BCBAs after a while. And I, it's because mm-hmm. all, all it really does is measure what already is. It's not like you made up mm-hmm. something new. You're just trying, it's a way of, of, de- of documenting what's happening in, in the environment and then what to make of that data once you've collected it. So it's not like you're making something new out of what, it, what is or, you know, inventing a new chemical or something. 
it's it's looking at okay here's what's going on in this actual real world environment you know and then to the degree the language plays into it which is always you know usually part of it mm-hmm. so to circle back around to the the, the school and the, the speech and language and the aba overlaps do you find that it is more efficient for you to be, be able to wear both of those hats or do you find that it can be equally effective to have a team where you've got a bcba and a speech and language pathologist working together I mean, what do you, how do you see, you know, all the different ways to still come up with the same information that a team might need with respect to behavior and communication? Yeah, in a school setting, you're typically going to have one person that's a speech therapist and one person that's a BCBA, and they can work collaboratively together with the student, the family, the teacher. Even though I'm duly certified, my role on the team in this particular job setting was as a speech language pathologist. So we actually had an outside consultant that we would work with. And it's so much easier for me to work with outside consultants because I'm a BCBA. So I understand all the different things that they're talking about. So is it easier for me to work with consultants and to make that a cohesive team? It absolutely is. But, you know, being duly certified allows me to work with ABA providers that want to offer speech therapy or offer consultations or I help different ABA providers with professional development, about communication. And so being duly certified is a very special niche area, and I can help businesses and families and individuals in a very specific way. But if you have a team and you have a speech therapist and you have a BCBA and they're able to collaborate, that's just as impactful. Yeah. Well, it does. I mean, it's sort of like, well, you have all your eggs in one basket on the one hand, but at the same time, you're <laughs> also got a more efficient, you know, a faster machine in, in a manner of speaking because you're not having to do the everybody on the team coming together and collaborating. It's all in one brain and mm-hmm. it can just, bleh, there it is. So, I mean, I, I you know, and I, I totally get that. And I mean, I'm in a similar situation in that I'm in the nexus between the legal side of it as a paralegal and a lay advocate, but also coming from the scientific side of it with my master's in educational psychology and all this, the work that I've done in that regard. And so I'm mm-hmm. straddling that nexus between where normally you would have to have an attorney who brings in a, an expert to tell them right. the science part of it. So you've got the expert who knows the science and you've got the lawyer who knows the law, but sometimes there's things they miss because they're talking apples and oranges and they don't, mm-hmm. You know, and it's not quite the same because I think the connection between uh, speech and language pathology and behavior is like way closer. I mean, it's it's really just, you know, two sides of the same coin. Whereas what mm-hmm. I'm doing, I'm really having to straddle two different universes and trying to get these people to understand each other's professional lingo. Because, you mm-hmm. know, you, the educators yeah. have their, their jargon and the lawyers have their mm-hmm. jargon. And a, and a lawyer may be able to identify that, you know, a timeline was violated. Or, you know, well, this kid's nonverbal and you didn't do a speech and language assessment at all. How is this a, a, a possibly a, a comprehensive triennial evaluation? You know, it's like, you know, when it's really over, the top egregious stuff like that a lawyer will recognize the failure but when you're talking about well this child has the potential to make x amount of growth in reading ability over the next year but you're not targeting an outcome that's that aggressive you're lowballing this kid on his iep goals a lawyer's not going to look at an iep and be able to recognize that You've got to have somebody who's an expert in, in the data and the assessment stuff to be able to look at, okay, well, what did the assessment data say about this child's capacity to learn and how, you know, and where their baselines were at the time everything was written and how aggressive is this goal relative to their baselines based on what we know about their capacity to learn. So you've got a, a, a scientific analysis that has to happen that the lawyer's not going to be able to do. But then you have educators who come into it and, and don't know the legal side of it. And so they'll see that discrepancy, but they don't know how to 
to advocate for the right thing. And a lot of times if they're going to a school district administrator who doesn't know that either, they'll just, oh, I guess that's just the way it is. You know, they, it doesn't occur to them that there's something that can be done or that the law requires more. Mm-hmm. And they, um, and it comes down to professional development. It's, it's not because anybody has ill intent. It's not because somebody's trying to mm-hmm. hurt a kid. More often than not, what I run into when I, I run into the challenges that I run to, run into, it's not because somebody's mean and they want to hurt somebody. It's because they don't know and they mm-hmm. don't have the resources and nobody told them. You know, I, I think it's exciting for me to hear from professionals who come from schools where that's not so much the case, that you're you're in a, a situation where you've got a really progressive team. And I've talked to other educators who come from really progressive public schools and school districts where, you know, everything is evidence-based and you've got really amazing people who are pushing forward really progressive and collaborative types of projects that include the families and don't vilify them. But you still got some really weird old cronyistic boss hog Roscopy Coltrane kind of <laughs> stuff going on down there too. And so it's a mix, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I think that where you are has a lot to do with it. So it's exciting to hear. And you said you're in Ohio. Yep. I'm in Ohio. So yeah, I've had really positive experiences. It's been been really wonderful. That's, yeah, I was sad to step away from the schools after 20 years, but I just, my business has grown so much at ADC Speech that, you know, it's just what I needed to do. So, well, and I'm, yeah, that's great. exciting to hear too, because, you know, all growth is just part of life. You have to grow and evolve into something else and, and the, whatever <laughs> skills you acquire in one situation and the benefit you serve to people while you were there just equips you to serve other people in a different kind of way, better, stronger, you know? And so it sounds like mm-hmm. that's what you're doing. So with your practice now, you're mostly working with, with a private families and then consulting with organizations? Yeah, so I divide my time. My podcast, Autism Outreach, is a big part of what I do. Yesterday, I batched three episodes, and so we have monetized my podcast, and so we offer it for continuing education units for geared towards speech-language pathologists, nice. and then I do some, I do some therapy. Um, I see a couple clients privately, and then I do some telehealth. I'm actually licensed in Washington State. Nice. And so I act in the capacity of helping ABA centers sometimes provide speech therapy, and then sometimes I just do consultations for uh, complex communication cases. And I do a lot of presenting. I do a lot of speaking about working on autism and communication and how to help students at various levels along their communication journey, and we offer courses. That's the biggest thing that we do is we offer courses about autism that are geared towards professionals and parents that are a little familiar with uh, the science of applied behavior analysis would probably be um, the best way to describe it, and we've just had a great chance and opportunity to be able to, to reach people through our courses. That's been really something that's been well, very rewarding. That speaks to the concern I was having before about, you know, just how difficult it is to get the science pushed into the schools. So people who are doing the kind of work that you're doing and, and being yeah. able to, to reach through them, through the internet, and nonetheless get the information out to these people so they have access. I think that is so critically important, and that's going to be such a huge part of what makes things better, is people like you doing the kind of work that you're doing, because you found a workaround. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to go down to the local school district and hold a workshop today, but I don't have to. You know, I can do it myself and put it out there, and and people can get their continuing ed units, and then, you know, Bob's your uncle, there it is. And so I think that that's that's very encouraging. Because our our courses are offered for speech-language pathologists, for their CEUs, also for board-certified behavior analysts. They're they're called ACEUs, and then also we do general certificates for teachers and parents, and that's been really great. So it's really just a mix of, I do live presentations, but then I also have these courses that are usually on Evergreen. 
and we have a new course coming out in September that is called the Advanced Language Learner, and that is going to be about students who are using two to three words on their own and how to help them go beyond basic communication skills. So I'm very, very excited and have been working diligently on that launch, so that will happen mid-September. That sounds really exciting. All of that sounds amazing and wonderful. So, well, I'm excited yeah. to be able to share that with our audience because I know there's going to be a lot of families out there who will benefit from it. I mean, by no means are our entire caseload um you know, kids with autism, that's some, you know, a good fair percentage of mm -hmm. our caseload. Yeah. But, you know, and this, they're not the only kids who would benefit from something like that either, that I have lots of kids with other types of issues that that would really mm -hmm. speak to their needs as well. And, and that, that knowledge being out there for the professionals in their lives, as well as their parents, the parent education piece mm -hmm. is really important. And I, so here's a, a thought, mm -hmm. implementing regulations of the IDEA include in its description mm -hmm. of all the different things that can be related services like speech and language or transportation or OT mm -hmm. or whatever. Parent training and counseling is also listed. And mm. and so some and the purpose of that being as a related service is so that parents can understand their children's disability better and be more effective participants in the IEP process and understand the IEP process because they have federally protected rights to inform consent and meaningful parent participation in the IEP process and they can't participate meaningfully if they don't understand. Mm. So the parent counseling and training component is to help the parents get up to speed on what's going on with their kid based on what the assessment and help them understand the disability and also, you know, uh, how to support and be, and be part of the IEP team and be able to be a, a collaborative member of the whole process and have that meaningful mm -hmm. parent participation where they're not in there just, you know, having hysterical fits because they don't understand and nobody can get anything done, you know, because that can happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm wondering um, how easy it would be for a parent to be able to get the cost of doing training through your program covered as an IEP cause. Yeah, well, you know, I actually did have somebody reach out from California well, where and I'm they at. wanted to sign their parent up for this parent training, but they wanted to know if I was a provider, which I think is something that's very specific to California and the region. Right, you have to Because be... I have a friend that is an SLP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I'm not covered on that. So, I mean, if there's any way that I could be covered on things like that, she said that I would have to have a physical location in California. No, 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 no. Which I'm not going to. No, 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 no. Here's what Ohio. you do. You do okay. it as a reimbursement model. Yeah. The parent pays you directly oh. and the parent simply gets reimbursed. Yeah. That's how you work around that oh, requirement because what you're talking about is in, okay. in California, in order yeah. for a, an agency to contract with a school district to provide anything special ed related, it ha they have to be a non-public yeah. school or a non-public agency. There's a license you have to get from the California Department of Education, and you have to have all, it's like this behemoth of a, of a red tape process. It's almost not even worth it for a lot of people, and which is why it's so right. difficult to find people to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, the workaround is if you have someone in private practice and the parent simply pays and then gets reimbursed. So they have the means to do that. Then a reimbursement model mm -hmm. is the workaround for those kinds of things in special ed. And that's, you can write it into the IEP that way, or sometimes it'll come up as part of a settlement agreement. And okay, because I have had some people reach out to me that way from California, well, but I'm just, I'm not there physically yeah. and I'm not licensed in California. You could do it but, remotely you know. and yeah, I mean, there's your answer. Mm -hmm. So if that helps you, you know, serve families okay. in my state, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah, good no, there's absolutely yeah, work you around. definitely have to 
courses that parents really, you know, enjoy. So, and, and just help them feel like they have a better understanding of what's going on in therapy, even if they're not going to be the therapy provider themselves. Right. It just gives them more of an awareness. Well, yeah, that yeah, whole point of understanding on. what's really going on and why these things are important mm-hmm. and why it's important for them yeah. to, to, you know, facilitate it and, you know, be part of the team to make it happen. You know, I would say to any parents who may have already paid for your services, especially if it's been within the last year or two, you know, and a lot of people coming off the pandemic have had to go out and privately fund a lot of stuff that they would have otherwise expected to have to do, mm-hmm. that uh, they might want to save those receipts and their proofs of payment. And if they are in any kind right. of dispute with their school districts trying to get services that they've otherwise had to get from you, that uh, if they've right. paid out of pocket for that, that that could be a re- reimbursable expense. And if they are going down that route, they do have an attorney or someone helping them with that process to have that person look at the situation, the facts mm-hmm. of their case, and, and the, how much they've had to spend on that to see if it's recoverable. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in very a lot of instances, I would think that not just the speech and language or the ABA or any of this, that stuff you're doing, but also the parent training could be a recoverable expense yeah. because of that provision under the IDEA that provides for parent training and counseling. So it's just something to keep in mind. It could get, get written into a kid's IEP. And then, right. you know, if it's not California, the district could potentially contract mm-hmm. with you directly. Yeah, because we're regulated. We're right. so regulated. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, it offers a lot of good protections that the federal law doesn't offer. Um, but it sometimes also mm-hmm. creates additional bureaucracy. It's like, really? Yeah, in other states, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. And you could actually get your, your product and your services written directly into a kid's IEP and get funded by the district for that. Another Mm -hmm. thing that I've seen with people doing similar kinds of of, uh, programs like yours is that sometimes they will be able to get a contract with uh, a school district to use the product, like on a license basis, where um, Mm. you train the speech and language pathologist to uh, Mm -hmm. replicate your content in their setting mm-hmm. and um, you know any mm-hmm. therapies or anything that you've developed or any strategies you've developed that are branded to you then becomes mm-hmm. it's like it makes me think of um, for pragmatic language assessments you have was it Michelle Winter Garcia Michelle Garcia Winter I never can remember I don't really use her that much anymore yeah but I mean, back in the day I, I remember like that was the castle. Yeah. well but the castle's a standardized measure so a norm reference mm-hmm. test is not, not going to give you yeah it's not going to give you the exact right. same kind yeah. of thing as an in vivo authentic we always do an observation and yeah make sure that we're observing in a natural environment you want the language sample and um but her um the thing that i like that she did was the double interview Mm -hmm. in one of the podcast episodes um with lisa chatler she's actually a speech therapist she lives in orange county Oh, right on. And she talks about the double interview and asking questions and yes. So I think that's really important mm-hmm. too. I mean, I think that there's value in norm reference standardized tests. But to us, to especially when you're talking about school psychology, because that's more my domain, you could be a psychometrician and paint by numbers and not understand what any of those tests do. You can go through the mm-hmm. motions of administering and scoring that test, and that doesn't mean that you appreciate what the data means. But I actually had a case a few years ago where we had an audiologist supposedly doing a, an assessment for an auditory processing disorder. Mm. She was with a, the district, had the choice of who was going to do it. They didn't have an audiologist on staff, and so they outsourced it to a non-public agency. And the young woman who was the licensed audiologist who administered the, the test, none of it made any sense. And she had transposed percentile rankings and standard scores on her, her scoring charts and whatnot. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't think she understands what these numbers mean. And her her, mm-hmm. resor- her report made no sense. And so we asked for an, a mm-hmm. second opinion at public expense, an IEE, for the district 
to fund an outside second opinion. And they said no. And so we had to go to due process to, to argue over whether or not they had done a good job and we needed a second opinion. And she gets on the witness stand and uh, we ask her, uh, well, what's the difference between a standard score and a percentile ranking? And she's like, I don't know. I'm not a st status, status. She couldn't say statistician. She goes, I'm not a statistics mm. person. And I could just feel the attorney for the school district die inside right next to me because mm. it was his case. You know, he was the one arguing that she knew what she was doing. He, he was a lawyer. He had no way of knowing that she didn't know what those things were because mm -hmm. he didn't know what those things were. So he was just, a, she was saying, of course I know what I'm doing. So he had her back. And then we get in front of the judge and she just tanked. She couldn't explain any of her data. And then we had our own audiologist who came and testified who was an expert witness about how it should have been done. And it was just night and day. And so there are people out there who are going through the motions who can administer and score a standardized assessment, but they don't necessarily understand how to interpret the data. And they may not have even chosen the right test. In this particular case, she just used a, um, a boilerplate list of assessments that the owner of the company she worked for, who was a, also an audiologist, said, this is what you do when you test for this. And so everybody was getting identical measures. None of it was individualized. And I mean, for a large part for that kind of testing, there's only so many things you can do, but still. And so she was, she was just going through this list of, of tests that her boss had said, this is what you do and listing the scores, but not explaining what any of it meant. And in fact, her scores were all transposed and she had them jumbled up and it didn't mean anything. And it made no sense whatsoever. And so how do you even trust that she administered and scored them correctly? That does happen for people who are thinking, oh, well, standardized measures for pragmatic language. You know, if you know what you're doing, you can go do a, an authentic language sample in the castle and that's going to get you there. But for the people who are paint by numbers folks who really don't understand, thinking that they can do pragmatic language in a, in a paint by numbers manner, you have to be able to engage in the, the act of pragmatic language of reading the person yourself in order to take the data necessary to, to read whether that person has intact pragmatic language skills. And if you don't know how to do that type of analysis, then you're going to have what I see is people falling more and more back on the standardized norm reference stuff and getting away from the observations, getting away from the, mm. the things like the double interview where they actually have to use judgment and there's a, a professional level of skill that and, and understanding and a higher level thinking and critical thinking skills that are required that a paint by numbers, let's just do a norm reference test and the, it will tell us what's going on up to a point. Yes. But you know, that shouldn't be the be all and end all. And I think there's a lot of value in some of these other maybe standardized, but not norm reference, maybe more criterion reference kinds of measures. One of the tools that I've seen used out here is the color Southern California Ordinal Scales of Development, and it's broken Ooh. into a cognition, a communication, an adaptive behavior, uh, motor skills, and one other that I'm not remembering, but all these different aspects of development that you have these subtests, that, mm -hmm. and it's based on a Piagetian model where you're trying to figure out Ooh. what stage of Piagetian development the individual is in each of the different domains, because when you're talking about someone with a developmental disability in particular, there's going to be scatter that they may be higher in cognition, but lower in communication. If they have apraxia, they may be uh, higher in, in cognition and communication, but lower in adaptive skills. It just, everybody's different, right? And so what it looks at is this criterion reference rather than norm reference. And you're coming at, can this person do this thing in any kind of way, yes or no? And so like when you're, you're testing for whether they've mastered the concept of conservation, the idea that mass doesn't change even if the, the, the way that the, 
the mass is arranged as different. So like if you have, or volume. So if you pour water, a cup of water, you're talking about like if you have a tall skinny beaker or a short fat beaker and you pour a cup of water into each and you ask the kid which has more. Well, neither, because it's both a cup of water. But a kid who has not mastered mm. conservation is going to say the tall, skinny one has more water because it goes up higher. And the short, fat beaker has less because it's shorter relative to it. So they're only looking at it from one dimension. And someone who's mastered conservation knows it's still the same amount of water. Or you take like a ball of clay and you roll it out into a snake and you say, is it still the same amount of clay or is it more or less? And a kid who hasn't mastered conservation will say it's more because it's longer. But the kid who has will say it's the same amount. I just change the shade. And so when you're doing mm -hmm. things like that, sometimes what can happen is when you're talking about doing those kinds of things, sometimes the example in the, the test in, the, in the, the ordinal scales will say, you know, here are some ways you can test for this. But it doesn't obligate you to do it exactly that way, the way a norm reference test are, would, where you've got to you've got to administer and score it exactly the same way for everybody. Well, the scoring is the same, but administration is not the same on a criterion reference because you're trying to get to whether the kid has the skill or not, not how they they display it. So if you have to do something different, like if the ball of clay doesn't work, but the beakers of water gets you there. And they can still demonstrate that they have at least, you know, emerging conservation skills. But if you only do one thing with a ball of clay and that's where you leave it and you don't experiment with it, it's like when you're testing your hypotheses when you're doing ABA. You got to fool around with it to see if you're actually your hypothesis is right. So for, for that kind of measure, what are the various different types of measures do you think are really the most reliable for giving you a, the broad full picture of how someone someone's communication and behavior plays into each other. Yeah, I think what's most important is to whatever you're doing, it's going to be dependent on your work setting. So if you're in a public school, there might be a certain expectation of what type of evaluation test you're going to use versus being in a practice that is either private pay or is insurance-led. Every work setting is going to have an expectation of what is going to be an assessment. But I think what's most important with an assessment is to make sure that you talk to the student you talk to the family, and that you observe the student in different settings. So observing the student in a classroom lesson, observing the student in a less structured environment like gym or recess or lunch to try to get a snapshot of the student's skills. But I really think assessment is an ongoing process and that every time that you see a student and you work with a student, you're going to be assessing how is the student doing? Are they generalizing their skills? And how can I help support my students? And that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you. I think that, that those, that's music to my ears because I think that that's something that's really important is the observation of, of students across various different settings because you're going to see different presentations based on different environmental mm -hmm. stimuli and different social demands. So I think that that's hugely important. I think that's where a lot of the pragmatic stuff really comes out. I think that you coming at it from the perspective of both a BCBA and a speech and language pathologist, that your ability to see the function of the behavior in a moment where pragmatics are not working for someone has to be so much more informed and, and enlightened than, you know, different brains having to come together to piece together the same story. So I really, truly appreciate, you know, what you're bringing to the table and you know, your insights into this this whole realm of how to, you know, help people who are struggling with these kinds of issues and all the different ways it can be done. And I'm excited to share your information with our audience as well so they can go to your site and your podcast. And <laughs> Well, it was really nice to connect. And yes, definitely feel free to reach out to me on the podcast, my free resources, and also the courses that I discussed today. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to include links to everything.
because a lot of my families are in like parent support groups and stuff. They'll benefit from it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great to met today. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the podcast version of Interview of Rose Griffin, SLP and BCBA. KPS for Parents reminds its listeners that knowledge powers solutions for parents and all eligible children, regardless of disability, are entitled to a free and appropriate public education. If you are a parent, education professional, or concerned taxpayer and have questions or comments about special education related matters, please email us at info at kpsforparents.org or post a comment to our blog. That's info at k as in knowledge p as in powers s as in solutions the number four parents p-a-r-e-n-t-s dot o-r-g we hope you found our information useful and look forward to bringing more useful information to you subscribe to our feed to make sure that you receive the latest information from making special education actually work an online publication of kps for parents find us online at kpsforparents.org KPS for Parents is a nonprofit lay advocacy organization. The information provided by KPS for Parents in making special education actually work is based on the professional experiences and opinions of KPS for Parents lay advocates and should not be construed as formal legal advice. If you require formal legal advice, please seek the counsel of a qualified attorney. All the content here is copyrighted by KPS for Parents, which reserves all rights.